Today, we start a major new teaching series entitled, you ready to say it with me? One, two, three. Eternity. It's a bit of a dramatic word. I love it. And um, there is a, there's, <laughs> there's an event that is uh, fast approaching in the Shaw family. I'm married to the wonderful Josie. I have three gorgeous girls, Daisy, Lily, and Poppy. And uh, there is a date, the 6th of October, which is fast approaching. And I'm sure you all know what's happening on that date. It is the day when not just Daisy Shaw, my oldest, has her birthday, but also Poppy Shaw, the youngest, she has her birthday too. Now, if you know anything about us as as a family, you'll know that we're all quite enthusiastic, okay? I am very enthusiastic about most things. We get enthusiastic about, I don't know, going to the park or going to Morrison's. So you can imagine... The level of enthusiasm right now that is sort of rippling through our household most of the time, every day, is a countdown to that great day that is approaching. Often, maybe in the morning over breakfast, even if it's a bit early and it's raining outside. Several times with Daisy, there's been these moments where she's eating her breakfast and then literally she'll she'll be like this, looking a little bit, you know, it's Monday morning. And then suddenly she'll go, I've just remembered. It's only... Six months until my birthday, or whatever it might have been when she first started doing this. And the level of excitement and joy about this, this birthday is, is tangible. It affects everything. Daisy and Lily have this ability, sorry, Daisy and Poppy have this ability to kind of connect anything and everything with that moment. So literally anything. They can be doing a job around the house, or it's time for bed, or whatever. And somehow they'll kind of, particularly Daisy, will go, that kind of reminds me, Dad, in nine days' time, it's my birthday. And so I hope you're very excited with me about the 6th of October. But as I was thinking about this, this whopping great topic of eternity, this huge, massive theme from cover to cover in the Bible, and in simple terms, Christians believe that when we die as a Christian, we're going to be face to face with Jesus Christ. The, the Bible says it's going to be paradise. That he is the most wonderful, kind, generous, glorious, merciful, stunning, brilliant, creative, wise, genius you could ever conceive of. Times a trillion. Times a trillion. And when we die, we're going to spend eternity with him. Hallelujah. Now that slight lack of response (laughs) slightly illustrates my point. Which is, when I was thinking about this... um, it did strike me, because I looked at my own life, but also, you know, I know lots of Christians, that there is this strange thing, which is, we say we believe that, we read it, we kind of know it, but there is this bizarre discrepancy, difference in virtually all of us between this mind-blowing truth about what happens when our heart stops beating and our lungs stop working, and the actual level of excitement and joy in our lives. You know, in a, in a way, it, our lives should be rather like Daisy and Poppy, shouldn't they? They should be. I mean, if they're getting excited about, like, I don't know, having croissants for breakfast and then a few balloons in the evening and, you know, a bit of a special tea. If they're that excited about that, do you see where I'm going with this, guys? Help me out. You can see how why as Christians, when we say... Oh, we believe that eternity is going to be mind-blowing and it's going to be la 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 And then most of our lives are like, hmm. There's something really, really 
weird about that. Really weird. Um, and I, I think that the reality is it's not just that we're not even normally like walking around like, it's my birthday soon. We're not, it's not just that we're not like that. And if you did that exact thing, you'd be very strange. But if, it's not just that we're not like that. I think often when we think about the, the issue of eternity, we're, we're often just, we kind of ignore it. Don't we? We, we often, we can, Christians can mention the reality of hell. We can sometimes quite often talk about how we get to heaven. We talk about the cross, the resurrection, how we get there, how Jesus has solved the problem. But often we don't spend an awful lot of time systematically, intentionally thinking about where it is actually that we're going, that we've avoided going by the grace of God. It's fascinating. We, we tend to either ignore it, we're just busy people. There's more pressing things, Tom, that are right here in my face. Sometimes it's not just that we ignore it. Sometimes we're kind of apathetic. We can be apathetic about it. Maybe it's because you've <laughs> at times heard other Christians wise counsel about their perspective of what it's going to be like to spend eternity. And actually, to be honest with you, it's just sounded really odd. You know, maybe the idea of an endless worship time, no offense, Holly, but then the idea of <laughs> just like endlessly worshiping forever, maybe you kind of think, I know I should be excited about that, Tom, but something in me kind of freaks out. And then you feel guilty about not getting excited, and you think I should be more spiritual. Yeah? If we sometimes we have this strange thing of, oh, it's just going to be about endless worship, and that's all we think, then we can then feel not excited, then we feel guilty about that. So it gets even worse. Sometimes, if we're really, really honest, we can even feel terrified at the thought of it. We can even feel honestly pretty terrified at the thought of eternity with God. Eternity with God. And so here's the question. Here's the million-dollar question. Why? Why is there this discrepancy between even a cursory reading of the juicy, glorious, mind-blowing truths about Jesus and eternity and everything and our apathy, fear, whatever it might be. What is going on? I think there is one central reason why we're not more excited about eternity. J.C. Ryle, a wonderful guy from the past, he said, I pity the Christian who does not daily think about eternity. I would add one more word in there. I pity the Christian, myself included very much, who does not daily think accurately about eternity. I think that's the issue. I think it's in a broad sense that we just don't really think about it. But I think really specifically, I think most of us just don't tend to think accurately about it. And so as we start this series for the next two months, I feel like in a way we're kind of approaching kind of holy ground. I think I don't know what else we could be talking about that's more just potentially life-changing than this. And so today, actually, rather than just diving into loads of detail about what the Bible says, I felt like I just want us to look at this and feel the weight of almost our condition. So that when we do start to eat the, drink the fine wine and, and eat the beautiful food of what we're going to look at, we're kind of ready for it. And we're not treating it like a hamburger or a 
you know? Because I feel like, I had this picture, I think if we're those who don't, who aren't used to thinking about these kinds of things, almost spiritually we're like, you know if you get bedridden for a long time, your muscles atrophy, and so you, you can't really do the things that you would normally do. And I felt like if we start diving today straight into like, and it says this, and then this, and th- th- I almost felt like many of us would just be like, I can't quite cope. So today I want us to look at this central question so that when we start to look in the real detail over these coming months, it's like this is a foundation that will mean, listen, number one, when you hear things that sound a bit beyond what you can normally think about, you won't make fun of it in your heart. And number two, that you won't forget it. That's my heart today. My intention in the next half an hour is simply that we will be almost on the edge of our seats over the next coming weeks and months. So as we look at this, it's not just like another thing, but actually it's a profoundly life-changing thing. So let's pray, and then we're just going to look at the two sides of one coin about the whole thinking thing. We're going to look at why we don't think about it, and then, more positively, why we must. Father, we love you, and... We just ask, Lord God, today that you will help us to think correctly. If you're happy to do this, join with me. Put your hands on your head. Lord, I pray for my mind. I pray for my brain. I pray for this gift. Lord, thank you that Christians are not those who throw their brains out. My word, the opposite. We're those who are called to think clearer and more deeply and more intentionally than any other people. We pray, God, right now, God, come and invade this room. Come and fill our hearts. I pray for our children that they will be blessed through their parents getting it more and more. God, help us as a family to be changed forever. Lord, forever by this stuff. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, two questions then today. Two questions, not three. Hallelujah. Two, that's all. Number one, why don't we do it? few reasons. Number one, theological clumsiness. Grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you haven't got one, it will come up on the the Bible. Up on... It's not a Bible, it's a uh, PowerPoint screen. It will come from the screen. My contention is the first reason we don't tend to think about it is because there is a kind of lie afoot amongst the Christian church body globally that, do you know what? Some, is, some extreme versions would even say we shouldn't really think about the next world. Let me show you what I mean. Few scriptures clumsily uh, applied can lead to that kind of wrong thinking, or just not thinking ever about the next world. Number one, 1 Corinthians 2 is a classic. This is Paul writing. He says, What no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. There you go. You just read that, and you can think, our brains can't understand it, our eyes can't see it, our ears can't understand it. You can almost read that and think, it's just beyond us. Yeah? And many Christians, they just have this thing of, it's just beyond you. Focus on today. Don't worry. Just, it's just beyond you. You can't imagine it, and so we don't think about it. Number two, another classic is Deuteronomy 29, 29. This is another classic. People wrongly quote this on this subject. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, that should say. Belong to the Lord, our God. It's this idea that, well, it's all very mysterious. You just can't know, Tom. Stop trying to think about these things that are higher than you. Another third one is from 2 Corinthians 12. Now, in this situation, the Apostle Paul, he's using the third person, but he's actually talking, most likely, almost certainly, about himself. He says this, I uh, knew a man, I knew this man, who was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. 
And he heard things that cannot be told, which man must not utter. And I think it's fair to say that Paul clearly felt he'd had this extraordinary experience whereby the Holy Spirit, he seemed to have basically seen something of heaven, right? Something of eternity. But he felt God say to him, I don't want you to talk about it. And so many Christians will go, do you know you're on dodgy ground, Tom? If you start to try and talk too much about eternity, Paul didn't do it. And he was pretty influential, right? Yeah, so you can see, so some of you are now thinking, these are really compelling, Tom. What are we doing for the next two months? It's crazy, I hear you say. I don't think it's crazy. I think you just, look, first of all, Paul clearly felt God say to him, don't do this. Don't talk about eternity in that sense. Or don't describe the experience you've had. However, what about Ezekiel? What about Isaiah? What about the Apostle John who wrote a book called Revelation? These three men alone clearly had the same kind of experience as Paul. They saw heaven, they tasted heaven, they genuinely seemed to have this extraordinary God-given gift of entering the heavenly realm, and they explicitly wrote it down in some very long books, some very detailed books, book of Revelation, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. Because God wants his people not just to have a cursory think about it, but to know it, to know about it. The Deuteronomy 29 verse the very second half of that verse, which says the secret things belong to the Lord, then says, but the things that are revealed belong to us. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. It's not just that they are accessible to us. They belong to you. You see, my deep fatherly burning desire for this church is that we will not have something that belongs to us robbed from us. Do you see that? I think we as Christians should be a bit like Daisy and Poppy. We should be. We should be going, yes, these are big things in my life and they're difficult, but my birthday's coming. But that day is coming. As Spurgeon famously said, the greatest day of your life is your last one. I love that. I want that for you. It belongs to you. Do you see that there's a belonging and many Christians, many of us, are massive. It's like we've been robbed and we haven't known we've been robbed. And it makes me cross. And as I'm going to show, I'm almost flowing into my second point now. Well, we must. But anyway, that's why we don't. Even with the first one I mentioned, um, it says in the very next verse, in the Corinthians passage, it says, but these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Come on, he's saying. When you become a Christian, it's not a small thing. It's not, I now vote this. Your whole being is invaded by the presence of God. You are the temple of the living God, whether you like it or not. It means that you have like this nuclear-powered station thing in you. That's not a brilliant analogy for the Holy Spirit, but you have this power that means you are able to, to increasingly, through looking at the Word and believing it by the Spirit, to live this life, even a domesticated Monday morning in the rain, to see it through the lens of eternity, and it will never be the same again. That's what it's saying. So I am a little bit aggressive about this because it belongs to us. It isn't a secret thing anymore. I mean, there is mystery. Of course there is. But God has done everything to reveal it so that we can live every single day with the lens of eternity. Hallelujah. That's the way. Thank you, Jesus. Well, sometimes we go, okay, well, I'm kind of convinced a bit. But then we can think, well, maybe we can only understand a glimpse. A little bit. We can understand a bit. And there's certain songs afoot. 
which I think lead to this kind of, we can just know a little bit. I don't want to get anyone upset here. This might be your favorite song. Please don't hate me. There is a song I can only imagine. You might know it. It's a lovely song in many ways. But it says, I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Will I be in awe of you? Be still. Will I stand in your presence on my knees? Will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? Now listen, at one level, I am so sympathetic with the writer of this song, and I like it, and if we we sing it over the next two months, it's okay. But there is a slight danger that it kind of leaves you thinking, well, I just, I don't know. What will I have? It's just beyond my imagination. So first of all, I think there can be a, a theological clumsiness, which means we don't. The second thing I would say is this, the death of imagination itself. The death of imagination itself. Man, I could preach a whole morning on this one. So just, just help me not to. <laughs> Eugene Peterson says it like this. Talking about Christians, he says, We have a pair of mental operations. Imagination and explanation. Bear with me, guys. This is worth it. Designed to work in tandem. When the gospel is given robust and healthy expression, these two, explanation and imagination, these two work in graceful synchronicity. Listen, this is the difference. Explanation pins things down so that we can handle and use them, obey and teach, help and guide. Imagination, though, opens things up so that we can grow into maturity, worship, adore, exclaim and honour, follow and trust. Explanation restricts, it defines, it holds down Imagination expands and let loose. Explanation keeps our feet on the ground. Imagination lifts our head into the clouds. Explanation puts us in a harness. Imagination catapults us into mystery. Explanation reduces life to what can be used and seen. Imagination enlarges life into what can be adored. Hallelujah! And his deep conviction is that we have lost our ability to imagine. Is that as a whole generation, is that now with things being so just purely visual, that there is a, there's an absolute epidemic that we're in the middle of, where we are not cultivating and stimulating and actually aware that but you cannot, can I be as strong as this? You can't grow as a Christian unless you have an active imagination in God. Jesus repeatedly says, oh, the kingdom of heaven is a bit like, it's like this. It's like a mustard seed. It's like a woman who loses a a coin and she runs after it. What's he doing? He's saying, imagine, 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 imagine. And it's absolutely huge. I think particularly for the kind of churches that we tend to be part of, we are very strong on, well, not very strong. We attempt to be very strong on explanation. What does the text mean? What does it really mean? And that's so good. And that is our bedrock. But as Francis Schaeffer says, is that we then, we don't let imagination cause us to fly away from truth, but it flies upon truth. It's that we start with explanation. We understand. And in a sense, Christians are the freest people in the world because we can actually imagine things that God has promised are true. And I am cross because I feel like in many ways the world is better at imagining than, than the church. I think the fact, you know, John Lennon famously said, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell beneath, 
only sky up above. You think to yourself, John Lennon is actually cultivating a lie. Imagine it, just imagine it, that the world out there generally is good at doing. My deepest desire is that we would be a church that actually, we, we need the help of artists, <laughs> creatives, poets, musicians, for us to be a church. You, you cannot, you cannot start, as soon as we start to look at issues of what eternity are going to be like, we, we, you cannot do it if we only are staying in the realms of explanation. Explanation and imagination are designed to go together. We are called to help our children, if we have them, to be raised to think and imagine. We're called to be people who actually spend our life saying, this is what it says, and now therefore I dive into a life of imagining it. Imagining it. Third reason that we don't tend to uh, think about eternity is our lives are too comfortable. If you see Christians in the world who aren't in comfortable situations, funnily enough, they start to think about it. <laughs> they really do. And they use their imaginations from the Bible. Oh, that's what it says? Let's think. What let's let, let that get into my soul. Let's, let's think about that. Because honestly, this life is pretty tough. Our lives are very comfortable at the moment. That may well change. Who knows? Fourth reason is materialism and rationalism. I talk about this a lot. Materialism is when you basically think the only real stuff in this world is the material, physical stuff. It's everywhere. It's why we're obsessed with measuring things. Yeah? And the poo-pooing of anything that's unseen. Rationalism is very similar. Listen to me. We are profoundly infected by this. It is everywhere around us. And that means over the next two months, when you hear about things that the Bible says about the next world, there's going to be a point again and again where it pushes that button in your soul. That you've been so ingrained to think, well, things must purely be rational, surely, Tom. Things must be rational. Well, the problem is the Bible is profoundly rational at one level. It's also utterly supernatural and filled with things that are beyond even our imaginations. Final thing is Satan. Satan. As Christians, we believe in a real enemy. And you can over-talk about him. Most of us feel a bit embarrassed to even say this is part of the gospel. Most Christians think, it's not very hip, Tom. Can we not mention? <laughs> it sounds a bit ridiculous. <gasps> a bit over the top. Yeah, that's what he wants. That's what he wants. He is real. He is real. The Bible says that he was an angel in heaven and he ultimately rebelled from God and has been the one who has led to the... He's the father of lies and led to this world rejecting God as it is doing en masse. Says the same as one who was in heaven. He knew and knows the glory of eternity. He doesn't want anyone getting excited about it. His great aim is if I can just get you guys thinking about anything other than that, job done. Job done. So you see, those are five, five reasons. There's probably at least another five. Why I want us to feel somewhat sobered at first. I hope you almost sense a, in your soul a, a righteous sense of, do you know what? I don't, want, I don't want to spend my life not thinking about this. I don't, I don't want to be someone who, because my life's comfortable, or because actually I, there's theological clumsiness in my heart, or I, I'm not someone who actually actively stimulates my mind. I don't want to be someone like that. And in fact, I would even go as far to say this. The Bible 
commands us, commands us repeatedly to be a people who do positively, proactively give ourselves in our lives, yes, living here, but all the time cultivating a vivid, accurate, inspired, informed picture of what the world to come will be like. So it says in Colossians chapter 3, it says, set your mind. You can turn there if you want. Verse 1, set your minds on things above. Oh, I wonder what that means. What it means is, set your minds on things that are above. Oh, right. Okay. Seek the things that are there. Seek them. Seek them with Christ, where Christ is seated. Set your minds on them. It's a command, repeatedly brought through Scripture, that we are to be those that do that. Now, this is the question. Why? Why? Why does it really matter, Tom? Yes, you've half convinced me, perhaps, that some of those points are they're sort of true. I probably don't think about eternity much. You have no idea how busy I am, Tom. But one or two of those have vaguely convicted me a little bit, so I'm half convinced. But why should I bother, Tom? Surely, surely, I can, I can be a good Christian, walk through this life, love Jesus, right? I love Jesus, but why, why do I need to do all that thing of like really deliberately, intentionally making it a central thing in my life? And I want to come lovingly right back to you straight away and say, I would be as bold to say, I do not believe you can live the Christian life effectively, powerfully, or robustly unless this thing, this concept, this reality of what's going to happen when your life ends here, that you, you just can't, it's like it doesn't fit. It doesn't work. You can't read the Bible unless you realize the, almost the biggest bit of the jigsaw is what's going to happen when our lives finish. You cannot understand the Apostle Paul unless you understand his whole life was like overshadowed with this stunning, glorious reality that any moment I'm going there. And so everything in this life is like was, was shone on because of the towering reality of the world to come. Let me just give you a few examples. For example, you can only be happy, joyful. Turn to 1 Peter with me. 1 Peter, you can only be a joyful Christian in this world if actually more and more and more, although you're physically here, your actual eyes of your heart are increasingly captivated by eternity. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter is writing to some Christians who are going through hell. And this is what he says to them. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. As soon as you see the word hope in the Bible, it's nearly always talking about the world to come. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Here we go. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. In what, what, what do we rejoice in? What do we find actual joy in? The hope that's kept in heaven for you. Now think about that. That's really practical. It's really specific. 
Let me put it the other way. Let me do the contrast. What he's saying is, do not rejoice or attempt to find consistent joy or hope in your husband or your wife or even your kids or in your health or in your looks or in your job or in even this church. He's saying, don't ultimately look to rejoice in those things. When they're good and they're brutal, just fantastic, small R, rejoice. But the capital R, rejoice of your life is to be in the hope to come. And I love this because in a room like this, there is a lot of pain. There is a lot of pain. And it may not be as big pain as compared with others, but there's a lot of pain. And what this is saying is, (laughs) don't beat yourself up if you cannot rejoice in almost anything in your life. What he's saying is, learn to rejoice ultimately in the hope that has been guarded for you in heaven. Isn't that amazing? It actually, rather than putting this pressure on you, oh, you should be grateful. I'm trying to be grateful, Tom, but honestly, everything just looks a nightmare. Amen. It will at times. And so biblical Christianity says, do you know what you're doing? It's not escapism. It's not a kind of fantasy. It is absolutely core Christianity to say, this world is not my home, ultimately. I am an exile. I'm not meant to be here, ultimately. I'm here for a brief moment, and my deepest identity is somewhere else. And that alone is how we become a people who can genuinely, consistently be happy. When, when we see on our screens, more than ever, the horror of, of just what's happening in this world, with ISIS in Syria and just this never-ending horror. If we are, you see, I want to be practical. I want us to be practical and help in ways that we can. There's nothing wrong practically doing things. But the ultimate gift that we have to give this world, more than a blanket or anything, ultimately, we do that, it's biblical, but the ultimate gift we have to give is actually the, the robust offer and and glorious hope that is beyond this world. When I, see, when I see thousands of people dying, I'm thinking, ah, what, what, what? I feel so unable to help. And then I realized, you know what? Ultimately, they may be blessed with a better life in Britain or France, but they might not. But you know what? The greatest prayer of my heart is that no matter where they live on, in this short life, is they come to know Jesus Christ. That they come to know that this life actually isn't the place to put your hope. Even though the world is screaming at you that. You may have a very short life. You may die at a young age almost. But if you come to know the living God and you come to have your faith and your hope in him. And the next world, suddenly we can stay sane. Let's put it that way. When all the world around us is going through agony. When I hear about Muslims, hundreds of Muslims going to Germany and going to church and becoming Christians en masse, transitioning from Islam to, to Christianity, something in me thinks, hallelujah, what, what the enemy meant for evil, God is using for good. And actually their life on here may be short or it may be uncomfortable compared with what others might be. But already the moment they taste that hope, they are more blessed than any billionaire that lives and doesn't know Jesus Christ. Because of the hope to come. Because of the hope to come. How can we be Christians who give? How can we be happy? How can we be those that give? The Bible is, is filled with, with expectations that Christians should be givers. I tell you how, the only way Tom Shaw can grow in becoming a giving person is when I am genuinely convinced in my heart that very, very soon I'm going to spend eternity with the most generous, glorious, kind, wonderful, giving God who we could ever conceive. That's how. It's not just by trying hard. 
It's by actually imagining regularly, I'm going to be with him. You know what it's like? Someone's company does change you. If you encounter a really unusually amazing person, it, you do just change. You, you just, you alter how you are. And we're going to spend eternity, if you're a Christian here today, face to face, intimately with the kindest God, the God who said, do you know what? Every person deserves hell. Every person deserves hell. That's right and just. But I'm so committed to not a single person. I'm going to make a way for everyone to be able to respond. That Jesus at the cross, at the cross, went through a hellish experience so that Tom Shaw and any of you here who know him can rest. That's the ultimate giving moment. Is at the cross. So when I look ahead to eternity, I can go, do you know what? Jesus, if you gave your life naked, alone, butchered on a cross, going through a hell that I don't have to, so I can get ready for eternity, you were cursed, so I can be blessed, then even someone as stingy and hard-hearted as Tom can just begin to change. And not just giving generally, but forgiving. Forgiveness. How, as Christians, are we able to forgive? I would say you cannot, we cannot hope to be a forgiving people unless we are those who are increasingly flooded with a vision of spending eternity with the ultimate forgiving God. The God who has done everything for us. The God who longs for us to see and to taste the goodness of God. I love it. It's a true story of a Ugandan bishop in 1973 who heard that um, there was three men who had been convicted of a crime and they were facing execution. And he was, said, uh, he was allowed to go and speak to them and they were literally just before, their, before the firing squad and the whole village was assembled to watch. And this Ugandan um, uh, bishop who was filled with fear, he said, I don't want to do this, this is, this is terrifying, they're going to they're be so angry at me representing God and this you know potential injustice so I don't even know whether it was meant to be happening anyway and as he walked towards their backs he was just his heart he just felt sick and then they turned around and as they turned around he said literally their faces were like glowing they were just beaming handcuffed ready to die and he and the first guy said to him oh bishop I'm so pleased that you were able to make it he said, when we were in my prison, I was told about the reality of Jesus Christ and the cross and that I could be forgiven and I know where I'm going. And I told my mate, and we, we know Jesus is real. Isn't this wonderful? And he was like, yes, this is amazing. And they said, don't talk to us. Go and, go and talk to the guards who are about to kill us. They don't know about Jesus. Go and talk to them. And so the bishop went over to it and tried to explain it. And the guards were so overwhelmed, they forgot to put the hoods over the men as, as they shot them. But apparently, as the guns went, these men were just beaming and joyful as they knew where they were going. They weren't full of anger about what was happening in their lives. They were filled with an, an inexplicable joy that doesn't make sense. And apparently, the whole watching village, there was like a revival that broke out after that moment, not surprisingly, when you see men facing their death like that. Knowing, do you know what, that moment, the moment my heart stops, I am with Jesus Christ. My birthday begins. I'm excited. I'm actually excited. There's a hilarious story about a guy called Henry Venn, 
who was, he lived a couple of hundred years ago, and he started the Anglican uh, Church Mission Society. And he was this amazing godly guy. And apparently he got rather to a, a senior age, and, uh, and, and, and this, he was, <laughs> the doctor said to him, I'm so sorry, Henry, but you're going to die. You're, you're imminently about to die. And apparently he was so excited and so thrilled, he kept on living for several more weeks <laughs> because of the joy. And it like postponed his death. We can only be those who forgive and give. We can only be, how do we become a people who are consistently on mission? We, Christian, you can only be on mission if you actually, we are convinced in our souls about the reality of heaven and of hell. You see, if you're a Christian here today, the Bible says this life is the nearest you're ever going to get to hell. But if you're not a Christian, the Bible also says this, is, this life is the nearest you're ever going to get to heaven. Unless you put your faith in Jesus. Now, I'm not trying to be dramatic for the sake of it, but I'm actually trying to say words that are biblical and true. And, and actually, we can't, as Christians, just have a series on eternity just to feel good. Because it's ultimately, it's also bittersweet, isn't it? As we think about what God, by grace alone, by grace alone, offers all people, but Christians enjoy it's got to be something that also fills our heart to say Monday to Sunday. I'm not just going to go, oh, wasn't that nice for me? Can't wait. I want to be like, like that guy that Tom spoke about who was getting ready. I want us to be those. That guy, Henry Venn, he started the Anglican Missionary Society. For him, eternity and the joys of heaven meant, therefore, he was going to give his life fearlessly, fearlessly, proclaiming the whole gospel. How do we be a people? How are you going to stand in that teacher's common room or in your sixth form common room or at university how are you possibly going to stand when someone looks you in the eye and mocks you how are you going to do it there is only one way by the power of the spirit who gives you and and convinces your soul that even in this world if everyone rejects me but ultimately that is a place that God is preparing for us that is more real than anything we can imagine how are you going to stay single and celibate some of you are going to be called to be single and celibate. And actually, you know, for the last 1,500 years, you would have been a hero. Yeah? For 1,500 years, if you were seen as single, you weren't like, oh, that's a bit awkward. You were like a hero. It's only in the last few hundred years that now it's like, oh, that's a bit of an awkward. Ooh, oh, yeah, a mm, bit awkward. No, no, no. Both. Both. Being married or single are given by God and have different challenges. But how do you do either? <laughs> how, do you, how do you stay single and celibate, I would say, with all my heart? To know that God is cheering you on. To know that heaven and eternity are so close. And in heaven there will be no marriage. How do you stay married and faithful when actually things are horribly hard? I tell you, 1 John 3, 3 says this. Everyone who has this hope purifies themselves. <sighs> you do. Yeah? If you're struggling and you're in your marriage and you're thinking about straying, the hope of eternity is not just some cozy thing. It's the reality you're going to be face to face with the God of the universe forever. That helps us stay on the straight and narrow. Last one, how do we become worshippers? You can't be a worshipper. Anyone here want to be a worshipper? Hallelujah, I want to be a worshipper. But how do we become worshippers unless we are ultimately more and more gripped about the place that Jesus is very excited about? He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You know, with someone... you. The things, if you love someone, you're close to someone, actually, you can't help but get excited about the things that they're excited about. 
And Jesus is really, really excited about you having a resurrected life in a resurrected body with the resurrected Christ on a resurrected earth. He's really excited about the next chapter. He's like, I can't wait for you to come. And that, that fills our hearts. It means that we become worshippers. It means that we become those who are actually able to go, do you know what? Even though everything around me is difficult at times, and I want the kingdom of heaven to break out as much as possible here, ultimately, ultimately my heart is set on that place. H.S. Laird, another guy from the last couple of hundred years, when his, um, when his father was dying, he very sensitively went to him and said, Dad, you know, how are you doing? He was very serious. He said, Dad, are you okay? And his dad apparently looked at him, smiled with a big smile, and said, Son, I feel like a child on Christmas Eve. And this is real stuff. And how we, as a Western church in East Kent, in the 21st century, how we need some ballast in our boats. Amen? We need some depth. We need to talk regularly about death, not because I'm saying death itself is not something that I particularly desire the moment of death. You understand that? But the Bible says repeatedly that, that actually this life can only be understood. We can only become worshippers. C.S. Lewis said, he said, actually those who have done most in this present life are those who have th- thought most about the next life. The way that you find your meaning in this life, it's like if you aim at eternity, you get this world thrown in. If you aim at this world, you can easily miss eternity. God wants us to be a people who who are gripped with a vision of what it would be like so that we can understand this world and we can live in a way that's that's appropriate. Should we stand to our feet? I'd love to just worship with a song or two. I just want to say one final thing while the band just get ready. One of the things I believe that is so exciting about the world to come is the fact that there will be no more reminders of the mistakes that you've made. Think about that. I was thinking about this. I was thinking, if you're here today, you probably love Jesus or you're kind of on your journey towards loving him. And that's so good. But when you live on this earth... We've all made mistakes. Some of us have made big ones. And, and this life can, you know, you love Jesus you, and then something reminds you. Maybe you didn't do well in your marriage or with your kids. Or maybe you as a, a child haven't done well with your parents. Whatever it might be, maybe your friendships are a little bit broken or maybe there's different areas in your life. And, and actually you love Jesus and you know you're forgiven. But there's reminders. It's just reminders. And I just felt this phrase as we, as we come just finally to finish is that in heaven, ultimately, there'll only be one set of scars left on his hands. That the things that you've experienced, some of you have experienced dark things. You have experienced tough things where you have been treated very badly and you love Jesus now and you, you've forgiven the person. And you've, but there's still that reminder And I just think, friends, God wants you to know that there's going to come a day in the new heavens and a new earth where there'll be no more reminders. The only scars that you can feel will will be on his hands through the cross. So, Lord Jesus, we just come before you. 
And we say, Lord God, would you over these next two months change our lives? Would you, Lord God, put accurate, wonderful thinking into our minds so that our souls live? I pray for boldness and joy and worship and liberty across this church, the like of which we've never seen. I pray for marriages to be restored. I pray for forgiveness to flow. I pray for generosity to spring up. Lord God, I pray for mission to be natural because of, Lord, what we see and touch and learn about over these next two months. Would you join with me even praying with that? There's something about the power of a whole people asking God, not just me, your pastor. Can you just even now, if you want that, almost just say, God, that thing of the secret things, they, they belong to us. They be- the enemy wants to steal them. Can we just have a moment of prayer even now? I know we don't always do this. Just even just ask God that where the enemy tries to rob an inheritance, he doesn't want his children to not be excited about the party. He wants us to be excited. So, Lord, we pray that the excitement of the party will start to fill our souls. I pray for joy. I pray for, Lord God, liberty. I pray for pennies to drop. I pray for burdens to, Lord God, assume their proper perspective, Lord God. Be with us in Jesus' name.